I want to take as my text this morning that reading from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, thought by some to be the first extent document that we have from the Apostle Paul. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, verses 2 through 10. If you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that text on page 1172. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and beginning at verse 2, which I'd like for us to look at again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and beginning at verse 2. Where the Apostle Paul writes, and this time he's not in prison, by the way. He's unusually. Uh, He is in Corinth. But he writes to them and he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we proved to be when we were among you for your sake. For you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only was the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not to say anything. For those who say things about you report concerning us, the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This morning I want to talk about three distinguishing marks of true conversion. Three distinguishing marks of true conversion. Now when I say true conversion or conversion in general, what I'm talking about is what Jesus was talking about when he said to Nicodemus, and as we read in the scriptures, that you must be born again, converted. And when I say three distinguishing marks or distinguishing marks in general, What I'm talking about are those things that one might expect to be present and evident in a person's life who has had or is having an authentic conversion experience. That is to say, not not just a person who's religious, which a person absolutely can do without God, but a person in whom God is doing a special redemptive work. And the first distinguishing mark, at least as we have it in our text, and there are many distinguishing marks, but there's only three that we're mentioning here from this particular text. I suppose if we were going to do all the distinguishing marks, we'd have to start in Genesis and go through Revelation, and I'm expecting we don't have time for that. But we're sticking to our text. And the first is a genuine response to the message of the gospel. A genuine response to the message of the gospel. Indeed, notice again uh, at verse 2. And we give thanks to God always for all of you, 
constantly making mention of you in our prayers. Notice, and then verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, brothers and sisters, that God has chosen you. Why? Because our gospel came to you not only in word or in words, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And so Paul uh, says that we give thanks to God always for you. The, the, the we here, of course, is Paul, and as we have it, right? In fact, if you have your Bible open, look at verse 1. Paul, Salvanus, or otherwise known as Silas and Timothy. That's who the we is. Paul himself and members of his mission team that had served with him when they planted the church in Thessalonica. And then those for whom he's giving thanks are, are, the, are those Thessal Thessalonian believers Thessalonica or Thessalonica, however you like to pronounce it, even today, still in northern Greece and was in northern Greece at the time in the Roman province of Macedonia. In fact, Greece at that time was made up of two Roman provinces, Macedonia in the north and Achaia in the south. Achaia were Athens and Corinth and some of the other cities with which we're more, perhaps more familiar and so Paul says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Verse 4, for we know we have confidence, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that God has chosen you. Or as Peterson in the message puts it, for we know that God has put his hand upon you for some special thing. Or someone else has put it, commenting on Jesus' famous words, many are called, but few are chosen. The difference between the called and the chosen is that the chosen don't just hear the call, the chosen answer it. And this accurately describes the believers at Thessalonica. And so Paul says in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you. In our prayers, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that God has chosen you because our gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power <laughs> and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. It must have been quite a sight. The gospel was preached. The Spirit was in the preacher. And the Spirit of God was in the hearer. And that's when things really click. And that's what Paul is talking about. In fact, in chapter 2, in verse 13, Paul says, For when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you. If you've ever wondered where we ever got that phrase that we might hear not just the words of men, but the words of God, there it is. And so that's the first distinguishing mark of a true conversion, a genuine response to the message of the gospel. The second distinguishing mark is a life governed by faith, hope, and love. A life governed by faith, hope, and love. Indeed, notice again verse 2 and then going into verse 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, and love 
right? That you find this all over in Paul's writings. Of course, perhaps in the most famous, the that past, famous passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which most of us have to go to a wedding to hear, right? But faith, hope, and love, these three, and the greatest of these is what? Love. And so Paul says that we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning in your prayers, remembering before our God. This made me think of, there's an old phrase, you know, sometimes that I don't, well, I think they might all be dead, but some years ago you'd hear people, somebody would say, uh, as some person some years ago used to always say to me, she'd say, um, remember me to Linda. I'm alone, Linda's at, back home, and she'd say, remember me to Linda which means to mention me to her, that, and that, I, that, I met, that I mentioned her and I was thinking about her. This is another way of saying, tell her I said hi. <laughs> Remembering before our God, three things. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, and love, sometimes referred to as the theological virtues. And so one of the distinguishing marks of true conversion is a life governed by faith, hope, and love. And so Paul mentions uh, th their work of faith. That is to say, work or deeds that are inspired and flow naturally from a true faith. Indeed, all true faith works. Sometimes I think we get the, in our mind that faith is just a, some sort of a consent to something. Do you believe in God? Oh, yeah, I believe in God. And how does that affect your life? <laughs> well, I don't know, you know. Well, that's not faith in the, in the biblical sense of the word. Indeed, all true faith always works. In fact, faith that does not work is not true faith. In fact, uh, James said famously, what? Faith without works is what? Dead. Faith without works is dead. It's no faith at all. Or as Donald Miller said in his book, Blue Like Jazz, and I want to quote him, what I believe is not what I say I believe. What I believe is what I do. Or as someone else has written, if you don't do it, that's because you don't believe it. Or still, as someone else said, we are what we do. Do you believe? Show me. And the believers in Thessalonica had a faith that demonstrated itself in the doing of that which is good. And then Paul mentions, um, and your labor of love. We might think of those as synonymous. That they do work, uh, works of faith, and labor of love. Um, that is a service to God and service to others. It is very interesting. The Greek word here translated labor literally refers to work that results in fatigue and even exhaustion. It, it sometimes is uh, translated toil. Something to keep in mind while the pumpkin patch is going on. Right? And that was the kind of work the Apostle Paul was doing with his companions, and the Thessalonians picked up on it. And they were doing it too. Indeed, um, Paul, in this same letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2 and verse 9, he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked, and this is the description, we worked night and day 
that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Someone has written, service to others is love made visible. He calls it the labor of love. Service to others is love made visible, or as Teresa of Luzo put it, true love gives without counting. I love that. True love gives without counting. Have you ever been in the church? And people are a little upset that uh, they're having to do a little bit more because, I don't know, somebody didn't turn up. Well, I, what you, do, you know, I, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Good. No, no, now you get to give more because maybe somebody's not there to give. Or maybe it's not a blessing. Now we're right back to <laughs> what we do is what we believe and what we don't believe is not what we do. I said it many times, and I'll say it again, you don't have to serve God in others. It's a free country. People don't serve God in others all the time. You get to serve God, <laughs> and you get to serve others. It's not a duty. It's a privilege, and when it's a privilege, there's no counting to go along with it. And then Paul mentions your steadfastness of hope. In our Lord Jesus Christ. That is this persevering in the kind of life that we're describing. Because of hope in Jesus Christ. That is to say hope knowing that what I do for him and what I do for others is never in vain. Never. It doesn't make any difference whether you get an award for it. Or nobody even notices that you're doing it. He notices and the reward lies with him. In fact, Paul writing to others, in this case, the Corinthians, he said at the end of that famous chapter on resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the very last verse, because there'll be a resurrection and because Christ is coming back and we will stand before him and we will inhabit and populate his coming kingdom. In this age and in this life, the apostle Paul says, therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. <laughs> uh, when he was um, waiting for death, in fact, perhaps one of the last things he ever wrote. We have it as the second letter to Timothy, who was with him in Thessalonians, by the way, in Thessalonica, by the way. But he wrote this famously. He's in the, we believe, in the Mamertine prison down in a deep, dark place, waiting to be brought up. And as it happened, according to tradition, um, they cut off his head because he was a Roman, uh, a Roman citizen. He, he, he could not, by law, be crucified, which I think disappointed him terribly because he wanted to die the same kind of death that Christ died, but they chopped off his head. But before they, they did that, he wrote this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who love his appearing, or if you like, those who are waiting for his coming. And so that's the second distinguishing mark 
of true conversion, a life governed by faith, hope, and love. Finally, the third distinguishing mark is a life so transformed by God that it makes a distinct impact on the lives of others. A life so transformed by God that it makes a distinct impact on the lives of others. Notice again verses 6 through 10. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction. This was a, the Thessalonians, like many of the churches in that day, and for centuries after, was a persecuted church. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word that is the gospel in much affliction, and yet in the midst of affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples of all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, the whole region. For not only was the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we don't even need to mention it. For they themselves, those who tell us, they report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you when we were with you and how you turned to God from idols, non-gods, false gods, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, the Son whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so the Apostle Paul says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. The Paul says this lots. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. By the way, Paul's primary focus in his life was not them. It was himself and his Lord. And his ministry to the church was this. I'm chasing after, you may not want to chase after him, but I'm chasing after him and I'm inviting you to chase after him with me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And the Thessalonians were doing that. They were an awesome church. <laughs> the Corinthians, not so much. But the Thessalonians, they were great. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, somebody has written, there's no reward for admiring Jesus. Jesus isn't looking for admirers. Jesus is looking for followers, disciples, longing to learn from him that they might live their lives the way he lived his. And so Paul says, and you became imitators of us and the Lord. How? How did they become such imitators? And he gives this example. For you received the word in much affliction and joy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was a man hounded. Maybe you've heard the story of his passion. Isn't it an extraordinary thing? God comes to us in human flesh. And when God comes to us in human flesh, the whole of the world says, we don't want you. How's that for humiliating? And so he suffered. And the apostles suffered after him. 
In fact, just read the book of Acts. How many times? Count up yourself. How many times Paul and Silas, and they get beaten? In fact, just in the 16th chapter of Acts, 17th chapter is all about Thessalonica. In the 16th chapter, they, they get beaten, and then they're thrown into prison, and then they, they make the people in the prison go nuts because at midnight, Paul says to Silas, hey, you know what? <laughs> Let's sing. <laughs> In fact, Paul says that some people say, I'm out of my mind. Well, if you're a light shining in the darkness, I suppose it seems odd. But even in the midst of his afflictions and with Silas, they sing hymns and the whole prison goes silent. You became imitators of us and the Lord. You received the word, the gospel, in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, as I mentioned just moments ago, the Thessalonians, were, the, the church in Thessalonica was a persecuted church. And yet, in spite of the persecution, following the example of Paul and his companions, even the, the example of Christ, they received the gospel, and they did the gospel, and they did it with joy. Massey Hamilton Shepherd, in his book, The Worship of the Church, commenting on the persecuted church, wrote that Emperor Constantine's famous edict of Christian toleration in A.D. 313, Constantine was a Christian emperor, perhaps the first Roman emperor to become a Christian. The Christian church had been around for more than 250 years, and it was making an impact even though it was persecuted. And so he passed this edict. It wasn't, it wasn't until later that the uh, Christian faith would become the official religion of the of the Roman Empire, but at this point, he just said, "It's can you believe this? It's no longer against the law. And we're not going to go after these people any, anymore. Leave them alone. But for 250, more than 250 years, they were hounded. In fact, he writes, until Emperor Constantine's famous edict of Christian toleration in A.D. 313, Christian disciples lived in constant danger of losing their lives and their property if apprehended by the police or turned over to the magistrates by informing neighbors or acquaintances. Counted as traitors to society and the commonwealth of Rome, they were denied by law, by law, they were denied the right to assemble with one another for worship. No matter how quietly or how discreetly they gathered for worship in their homes or in cemeteries where they laid their dead, Christians were never free from the threat of molestation and violence. It's interesting to note that this still takes place in many parts of the world. In fact, Richard Wurmbrand in his book, Tortured for Christ, and he was one of them, he spent 14 years being tortured in Romania under the communists. He said, faithful persecuted churches, the faithful persecuted church, I should say, has thousands, and by the way, he's being, he's being um, conservative and modest, it's millions. The faithful persecuted church has thousands of members. They have secret meetings in basements, attics, apartments, and fields. And he continues, this is great, never feel sorry for the persecuted church. I have only ever found truly joyful Christians in the Bible, the underground church, 
and Christians in prison. This made me think of the words of Jesus in his great way in which he starts what we call the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, those states of blessedness. And the last Beatitude is this. Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those, blessed are those of you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. <laughs> blessed! I've never been to a meeting, you know, where we said, well, let's, you know what, let's count our blessings. How has God blessed you? Well, I'm being persecuted for doing what's right. Again, madness, right? See, Paul wasn't the only one who was mad, so was Jesus. God come in the flesh. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To whom does the kingdom belong? Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I've said it before. A young man said, oh, I want to suffer for Christ. I said, listen, you don't need to go looking for it. Just do the right thing, and suffering will find you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so Paul says in verse 6, And you, the Thessalonian believers, you became imitators of us and the Lord. You received the word in much affliction, but you received it with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in the north and Macedonia, where you, where Thessalonica is, and in Achaia, in all of Greece. <laughs> Verse 8, for not only was the word of the Lord sounding forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, across the Aegean, and to the west. <laughs> your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't even need to say anything about it. We, we hardly get a chance to say, hey, Linda, we want to tell you about what happened in Thessalonica. Even before we have a chance to say that, they're telling us about what happened in Thessalonica. They're telling us what happened with us and you. <laughs> Verse 9, for they themselves, those who had been impacted by the testimony of the believers in Thessalonica, as the New English translation, people everywhere, they themselves report concerning about the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God, and how now you're waiting for His Son. Are you waiting? <laughs> the persecuted church is a real waiting church. You know why? Because the world offers them nothing. John said in his letter, Love not the world nor the things of the world, for if the love of the world abides in you, the love of the Father doesn't. <laughs> Maybe we're not waiting for him because we're so comfortable here. 
and how you're waiting for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. And if he raised him from the dead, he certainly can bring him back to us again. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That last phrase reminded me of Paul's words written famously to the Romans. There's now therefore no condemnation, no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I wonder, as we think about this, what kind of Christian life are you living? I mean, think of some of the words that Paul uses to describe the kind of Christian life the Thessalonian believers were living. Faith, hope, love, power, joy, even in the midst of difficulties, persecution, injustice of the highest order. Injustice against them and because they're following God and injustice against God. Is that how you would describe your life? Is that how others would describe your life? Indeed, is that how God would describe your life? And if not, what do you plan next? Because it's never too late to change. <laughs> Amen? It's never too late to change. Let us pray. <laughs> Lord, I pray you give us an appetite for this kind of life. It might seem to us such a burden, but even as Wormbrand said, don't ever feel sorry for the persecuted church because they have something you spend the whole of your life searching for. Real contentment and real joy. And the reason, Lord, we often don't have it is because we try to find it in things that can ne never bear the weight of our demand because they're just idols. And so we go from one idol to the next, to the next, to the next, in search of some feeling of happiness or contentment or trying to answer difficult questions in our mind about whether we matter or if life's worth living. But as Pascal said, there's a God-shaped hole in each one of us, and no idol can fill it. And what seems maybe to some a hard life to live as a Christian the way the Thessalonians lived it, I don't know. Faith, hope, love, power, joy. I can almost hear you saying, try it. You'll like it. <laughs> so help us to do that, Lord. That you might be glorified in us. And that we might know joy unspeakable and full of glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.